we're not going to get very specific. People have gotten very specific in the past, in a sense saying, well, I know the exact date when Jesus is coming again. They've worked out Bible codes and, and based on numbers and, and the dates and things like that. They said Jesus is coming here. Um, we're not going to do that this morning. What we're going to do is we're going to take these general principles that Christ is giving us. Yes, we're going to talk specifically about the coming of the kingdom, what that's going to look like. Um, but we're going to use what Jesus is telling us here in Luke chapter 17. Because in reality, the Bible does speak a lot about when Christ will come again. It uses a lot of imagery, a lot of prophecies are made. Um, and we're going to take these and we're going to um, talk about what we know uh, about Christ's coming again and this coming of the kingdom of God. Uh, when I was in college, I got to spend a semester in Kenya. Um, I knew that when I was in college, I wanted to go somewhere. And Africa seemed like a great place to go. Um, I had never been, uh, well, I had been out of the country once uh, when I was 18. And uh, so when I was 20, I wanted to go to Africa. And while we were there, I spent a time at a place called Daystar University. And they have a campus in Nairobi, but they also have a campus about an hour outside in a little town called Athi River. And Athi River is surrounded by, um, well, if you think of Africa and the savanna, uh, that's what it was like. It's got those trees that are kind of angular and cut off at the top. Um, it look, kind of looks like tumbleweed. Um, there's just uh, this huge savanna, in a sense, around. And when I first got there, we went out on a, on a hike. And they, were, they told us to be careful for the animals. <laughs> now, when you do that around here, you know, you're careful of what, like raccoons or rabbits or I don't know what you're careful of, skunks maybe, um, they told us to be careful of the giraffe. <laughs> so uh, we went out and uh, saw this huge herd of giraffe, like not in a zoo, not in a protected area, just out, a bunch of giraffe. Uh, on another time, we went out on a hike, uh, my friend Ben and I, and we came across this, the, this thing that was completely out of place. It was a boat. It was a boat that someone, we have no idea who, uh, had begun to make, and it was out of concrete. It was hard as a rock. Um, and we called it the Ark because it was miles and miles away from any water. There was no river running through there, and it was completely abandoned and deserted. Uh, we explored it a little bit, and uh, we just were curious about this Ark that was in the middle uh, of the savanna in Africa. A lot of questions about it. What was going on in this person's mind as they were building this? Why were they doing it? Uh, were they preparing for, for some, uh, you know, water world apocalypse that somehow, you know, global warming was going to take effect and the, 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 the shoreline was going to move inland and, and suddenly uh, there was going to be need for this boat? We had no idea um, what this man or this person or a group of people were thinking. But whatever was going on, this person was certainly thinking about the future, about what was to come, and he was preparing himself for it, which is unusual. Phil Riken, in his commentary on this passage, says this. He says, most people are so preoccupied with what is happening today that they hardly ever think about kingdom come. We prayed about that this morning, didn't we? We pray about it every week. We say, your kingdom come. But how often do we really think about that? The fact that God's kingdom is coming. 
And not only that, but most people don't understand the fact that the kingdom is, yes, it is yet to come, but it's already here. The kingdom is present. And Jesus reveals that to us in our passage this morning. So what we'll see this morning is that the kingdom of God is already here. It is present with us. But the kingdom of God is not yet here fully. And because its fullness is not yet realized, we need to be prepared and ready for it when it does come in its fullness. So uh, as we've been going through the catechism on uh, Sunday mornings, we've realized that there's a lot of definitions that as you uh, come across a question and answer in the catechism, uh, you'll have a term and then it'll be defined in the next answer. Uh, Like, uh, what is sin? Or what is God? Or what is effectual calling? Uh, Things like that. So as we start off this morning, we need to define some terms. What is the kingdom? This kingdom of God that we're talking about. Uh, If you remember back to when we studied the Pentateuch together uh, in the uh, early part of this year in January and February, we talked about the kingdom of God. And so briefly, uh, we can spend a lot of time on this, but the kingdom of God is where God is king. I know it's a very simple answer, but it, it is the place where God is ruling and where he is reigning. When God created the world, he created it perfectly to display his glory, he created it as his kingdom. With the fall, mankind brought sin and death into the world, which are enemies of God. These are enemies of God's kingdom. And since then, God has promised that he will completely restore his kingdom, his rule and his reign here on earth. So the kingdom of God is where God is king. Uh, The Old Testament speaks often about the coming of the kingdom of God. Um, Here, this uh, passage from Isaiah chapter 2, where the prophet writes, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. This is just an example of what the Pharisees would have read regarding the kingdom of God. So when they had uh, in mind this, this term, the kingdom of God, they believed that the kingdom of God would be this physical, that it would be this earthly kingdom that they would be able to tangibly see, that it would be a kingdom where God would set up his rule and his reign over all the earth, and that as Jews, that they would be ruling and reigning with him. So it's in this context that the, the Pharisees are asking this question, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And what the Pharisees are looking for in Jesus' answer is, what they're really asking is, when is God's kingdom going to come and kick out these Romans so that we can have our land back and we can be ruling and reigning as God's people? That's really what they're getting at here. But Jesus comes and he takes their question and he turns it on their head or on its head as he often does. Because the Pharisees are expecting the kingdom to be coming. They're not ruling and reigning. They're being ruled by the Romans. So they're expecting this kingdom to be a future kingdom. But Jesus says, no, the kingdom of God is already in your midst. 
And this is what they didn't understand. That if the kingdom of God is where God is king, then wherever God is, there is the kingdom of God. And what they didn't realize is that their king was standing right in front of them. What they didn't realize is that the kingdom was literally staring them right in the face. That Jesus came to bring the kingdom. What does Jesus do? What is his first teaching? He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Because he as the king is present. Jesus was telling them that the kingdom was going to be coming in a spiritual way, not in a physical way to begin with, at least not at first. It will be a physical kingdom, but first he comes to bring the spiritual kingdom. So the kingdom of God is already present. It was present with Jesus 2,000 years ago. It is present with us today. The Pharisees missed seeing the kingdom of God because they weren't looking for it properly. They didn't have eyes to see it. The kingdom of God is already present in our midst as long as we have the eyes to see what is actually happening. The abortion debate has come to the the forefront again very strongly over the last couple of weeks. I don't know if you've seen the videos, uh, these Planned Parenthood videos that have come out. Um, They're very disturbing. Um, They're very disturbing. Um, We need to be praying praying for our country right now uh, as these things are coming to the light, uh, that we can show the gospel of grace uh, in these situations. Um, But we see these things and all the other atrocities that we're bombarded with in the news. And it is easy for us uh, to slip into this, this notion of despair. Like, all this stuff that is going on, like, we are... Uh, Everything is awful. The world has never been as awful as it is today. But in reality, that's not true. The world has been awful since the fall. It has been. um, We just hear about it more often today, I think. I wish that that we could hear all these stories. uh, Instead of hearing all these stories of doom and gloom and uh, about what is going on, that, that we could hear more about what's coming out of places like the Crisis Pregnancy Center and the things that Raybel gets to experience uh, on a weekly basis of, uh, with volunteering there, uh, of these women who, who walk out of uh, a crisis pregnancy center with, with renewed hope, uh, of the children that have been saved, uh, of the hope that we have uh, rather than the doom and gloom that we hear on the news. Because the kingdom of God is present. The kingdom of God is at work. We don't often see it. We don't often take the time to notice what God is doing, but He is working. The kingdom of God uh, is present because we know that the gospel is being preached all over the world. People are coming to faith in Christ. He's using our missionaries that we're going to be able to spend time with next week uh, to bring people to Christ. He's using us to bring people to Christ. The rule and the reign of God is extending in the hearts and the lives of people all over the world. The kingdom of God is present. It is here. Now, although Jesus talks about the kingdom of God being present, he also talks about it as being a future reality. In theological terms, we call this the already and the not yet. 
This is something that the Jews at that time had no understanding of. They didn't see it coming that way. They thought when the kingdom would come, it would come in, it, in its fullness, in its reality. But when Jesus came, he came to bring it, he came to leave, and then to bring it in its fullness when he comes again. So we are in this time uh, where we call the already but the not yet, where we experience aspects of the kingdom, but not in its fullness. So if the fullness of the kingdom is yet to come, how will we know? How are we going to know when it's here? Jesus is very clear with us uh, in verses 22 through 25. He says, For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So we don't know a lot of specifics all right, from this passage. We can't get into the exact time and the date what it's going to look like specifically, but here's what we can know from this passage about what it's going to be like when Jesus comes again. It's going to be obvious, it's going to be sudden, and Christ is going to come in judgment. So obvious, sudden, and with judgment. We aren't going to be need, <laughs> excuse me, we won't need to be told that Jesus has come. It's not something that we're going to miss. It's going to be something that is so unmistakable that everyone, everywhere, will see it. It's going to be like lightning, Jesus says, that lights up the sky. Um, if you've ever been in a really good lightning storm, um, in Orlando, in central Florida, uh, I think they call it the lightning strike capital of, of the U.S., maybe even the world. Um, every afternoon, they have this thunderstorm from, I don't know, from 2 to 4, it seemed, um, and the lightning there was just incredible. Uh, I think it has something to do with the Gulf and the Atlantic and coming together right there in central Florida. But lightning there was incredible. In the five years that I lived there, um, the lightning was amazing. Uh, you don't uh, need people to point out for you that the lightning is there. You see it, and it's impressive. It is clear and unmistakable. Jesus tells his disciples, don't listen when people say, Jesus is here, he's over there. Or come, I've seen Jesus. We'll see it. We'll know it. It'll be obvious. We will not miss it. So do not let other people deceive you. You'll be able to see it for yourself. It'll be that obvious. There is a video that I've seen on YouTube that the Washington Post did. Uh, it's an experiment, a social experiment that they conducted with Joshua Bell. Uh, if you don't know the name Joshua Bell, don't worry. I didn't know it either until I saw the experiment. But apparently, he is a very accomplished uh, concert violinist. Um, if you were to tell me, uh, name a violinist, I, I couldn't do it. Um, I could tell you Yo-Yo Ma, and, but he's not a violinist. He's a cellist. So um, he apparently is a very accomplished violinist. And so they took Joshua Bell and they put him in the DC Metro, in the subway, during rush hour. They, they had him play for about 45 minutes with his case open in front of him on his $3.5 million violin. Um, I don't know if I, I would have the guts to take that to the DC Metro and play that in front of people, um, but that's what he did, and he played for 45 minutes. Can you imagine what happened? Thousands of people passed him by. 
seven people, seven people stopped. One person recognized him. Just one. Now granted, a lot of people were on their way to work. And if you're running late to work, you don't really have time to stop. But you get the point. Um, only one person out of thousands recognized him. Two days earlier, he had played a sold-out concert in Boston where tickets were going for over 100 bucks a piece. And here he was in the DC, in the DC metro, and no one knew he, who he was. This is not going to be the case when Christ comes again. We will not miss him. It will be obvious, and we will see it. Um, it will be very sudden, but we will not miss it. Not only will it be obvious and sudden, but it will also come with justice. Let me explain what I mean by that. You may not see that immediately in the text. Jesus describes himself here as the Son of Man. This is one of these terms that we need to define. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of Man? He's referring back into the book of Daniel, this prophecy that Daniel uh, has in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where he writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus, the Son of Man, comes, he's going to come and he is going to bring justice. Like in the days of Noah, like in the days of, not, uh, of Lot, Christ is going to come and exercise justice. Now, justice can be good or bad, depending on how you look at it. One who is guilty does not look forward to justice, but one who is innocent does. When this happens, when the Son of Man comes again, there will not be all rejoicing. There will also be weeping. For some, it is going to be a, a day of great joy, but for others, it will be a day of great terror. And we need to realize this. But Jesus says that before the Son of Man can dole out His justice, something must happen first. Something that hasn't happened yet when Jesus is talking here, but for us, something that has occurred. Jesus says that he is that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected by this generation. So suffering comes first. The Son of Man first needed to complete what he was sent to do, to suffer, to be rejected, and to die. So in order for God to fully establish his kingdom, let's get back in this kingdom mindset. For God's kingdom to be fully established, all his enemies need to be wiped out. And the enemies of God's kingdom are sin, death, Satan, and hell. So how does Jesus, as our Redeemer, how does he destroy his enemies? He does it through his own suffering, through his own rejection, through his own death. The way that Christ defeats his enemies is through experiencing these enemies for us. Uh, we've been going through the catechism on, on Sunday morning, 
And uh, over the last week and this past week, we've looked at two questions. Um, we've looked at the nature of Christ, who he is, and we realize that he plays the offices of prophet, priest, and king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. So I'm going to read for you um, question 27 and 28, um, talking about Christ's humiliation, how he suffered and died for us, and his exaltation, how, Christ, how God raised him up again. Uh, unless someone wants to quote these, does anybody feel confident enough in that, that they want to share with us? No. I don't want to put you on the spot like that. So question 27 says, where does Christ's humiliation consist? And the answer is, Christ's humiliation consisteth in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried, and in continuing under the power of death for a time. This is the suffering that Christ experienced for us. This is what he was talking about here in the passage, that he must be rejected by this generation. But it didn't end there. It doesn't end with Christ's humiliation, because Christ's humiliation is followed by his exaltation. In, ver in uh, question 28, wherein consists Christ's exaltation? Christ's exaltation exists in his rising again from the dead on the third day in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. This is when the Son of Man will come again. So in reality, let's think of it this way. This battle flag for the kingdom of God is Christ's suffering and death on the cross. There's been a lot of talk in the news recently about a particular battle flag. Uh, a battle flag is meant to, to inspire, to, uh, it rallies troops to it. The battle flag that we have is one of humiliation, one of suffering, and one of death. And this is what Christ has done for us. We rally to Christ's humiliation. This little verse here that Jesus tucks in is so important. Before he can come with justice as the Son of Man, he needs to suffer and he needs to be rejected. Because the coming of the kingdom of God would be an awful and a terrible day for everyone if Christ had not suffered and died and been rejected. If Christ had not come first to suffer on my behalf, I would not want him to come at all. Because if he did not come and suffer and die for my sins, I would still be guilty. And if I was guilty when the Son of Man comes, then the judgment of God rests on me. And it rests on all of us. But Christ did come. He was rejected. He did suffer and die. And through faith in Him, now when the Son of Man comes to dole out justice, it can be a day of great rejoicing. Because of Christ's blood, we are now made innocent. His record has been transferred to us in our justification. So Christ goes on in this passage, and He warns them, uh, just in the days of Noah, 
just as it will be in the days of Lot, he says, get ready, for the kingdom will come and it will be sudden. He wants the people to have a sense of urgency. Now, this was written 2,000 years ago. Jesus is still coming. The Son of Man has not come yet. He said He would, but after 2,000 years, I fear that we've kind of lost that sense of urgency. If you were a kid and your parents told you, we're going to go to Disney World, you'd be super excited. Um, But what if they said, well, we're not going to tell you when. We're just going to go at some time. At first, you'd be really excited. You'd pack your bag. You'd be like, I'm ready. But then if years went by and you still never went to Disney World, would you keep your bags packed? Probably not. You'd still have that sense of complacency. I feel like that's where we are right now, uh, that we focus a lot on the present and we don't realize what is waiting for us in the future when God's kingdom comes again. Jesus says to remember Lot's wife. If you remember the story, as they were leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, she turned back when God had told them, do not look back, because her heart was with what was behind her instead of the kingdom that was in front. And I fear that's what we uh, often feel as well. Where is our heart? Jesus concludes in verses 37, or 33 through 37 uh, with these words. He says, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to him, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So the first question is this. Well, does this mean that there's going to be a rapture? Those are the first questions that you ask. Uh, Honestly, if you read this in the context, um, I don't think that you actually want to be the one who is taken. Uh, This is talking about judgment. Uh, He's talking about the days of Noah, uh, the days of Lot. And the ones that are taken are the ones that are taken in judgment. Um, He's talking about the Son of Man here. Um, we don't know exactly what the end is going to look like. And I don't want to get hung up on the details. But we want to remember that when Christ comes, it will be sudden and it will come with justice. There will be an immediate separation of those who are going to heaven and those who are going to hell. We need to remember this. And Jesus says that if you seek to save your life, you will lose it. But if you seek to lose your life, you will keep it. And that's where we will conclude this morning. We're going to conclude with the gospel. So what does it mean to save your life? Let's get back into these definitions. It means to be concerned with your own self-preservation, to be self-centered, to be self-seeking, to be, uh, to save your life is to be concerned only with this life. It's to be so short-sighted that we don't see beyond the years that we have here on earth. Jesus says instead to lose your life. To be so overwhelmed by the grace of God that we have in Christ that you lose all sense of self-preservation. 
that you lose all sense of self-interest, self-centeredness, self-seeking. Instead, your, your perspective changes from this life and this life only to a perspective of eternity. So when awful and terrible things happen, and they will and they are, you don't lose hope because your perspective is not only on this life, it is also on the life to come. So Jesus is telling us and his disciples to give their lives away. We can't keep our lives anyways, so why not give them away? So it reminds me of that great quote from Jim Elliott, that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And that's so true. And the only proper motivation for us is the gospel. That Jesus himself did not seek to preserve his own life. In fact, he gave his life away. He gave up his right to self-preservation in the most selfless act imaginable. He lost his life, and in reality, he gave it away in order that he might keep it for eternity. He sacrificed himself on the cross for our sins. And because he did, because he suffered that humiliation, God exalted him. God exalted Jesus and gave him all authority and all power. And because Christ sacrificed himself, we can now lose our lives as well. The blood of Christ preserves our lives. And when the Son of Man comes, for those who are covered in the blood of Christ, it will be a day of great rejoicing where Christ will rule and reign and we will rule and reign with Him in the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and our Father in heaven, We thank you and we praise you for the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has come to usher in the kingdom and that we can see it visibly and tangibly here even now. And we look forward to the day when your kingdom will come in its fullness, when all things will be made right, where Jesus will reign and we will see it. And Father, we look forward to that day. Father, we pray for those who have not put their faith and trust in Christ. And I pray that you would use us as ambassadors of your kingdom to share the gospel with those who do not know you. Because we know that when the Son of Man comes, it will be a terrible day for those who have not put their faith and trust in Christ. Use us, Lord, for your glory. Use us for the advancement of your kingdom not only here in central Arkansas, but to the ends of the earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.